The sound of an orchestra warming up was no part of my life until I became a huge fan of the Finnish composer Jean Sibelius. His music is the sound of winter, forests, nature, and for Finns, the sound of their own hard-won independence in 1917. Broody, powerful, emotional, and vivid, that music brought me this summer to Lahti, a city one hour northeast of Helsinki, for the trip of a lifetime, a visit to the world's only annual Sibelius Festival. I discovered some amazing things. Sibelius heard different notes from F to D major when he saw different colours. It's called synesthesia. Some of his earlier work, based on Finnish folklore, is only being played in public for the first time now because the composer was so determined not to be dismissed as a romantic nationalist. And yet his Finlandia, still the country's unofficial anthem, was performed under titles like Happy Feelings at the Awakening of Finnish Spring to avoid censorship during Russian occupation. Indeed, that first concert in 1899 was advertised as a fundraiser for the pensions of newspaper workers while it was really financing a free Finnish press. And when Russia invaded Finland during World War II, Sibelius refused many offers of sanctuary abroad. A complicated man. And few know the twists and turns of his character better than Thomas Kinber, violinist with the Lati Symphony Orchestra for 20 years, then its general manager for another 20. A straightforward question to begin, though, what's the connection between Lati and Sibelius? Uh, there is a connection uh, between the Sibelius Hall, which we opened 2000, and Sibelius, uh, but it's very narrow, because Sibelius came to Lahti in uh, 1895, and 96 or close to Lahti to spend his summers. Uh, they had rented a house to be a summer house kind of. And they took the boat uh, close to the Sibelius Hall and, and, and there was a boat connection. And they took the boat to the summer place. So he composed uh, the Lemminkainen uh, during those uh, that summer and uh, he did a lot of fishing. So that's the narrow connection. But of course the strongest connection is the relationship with the orchestra and uh, between the orchestra and Sibelius. Uh, because uh, we started to record the original versions of Sibelius music, Sibelius music to the record company BIS. And the first thing we did was the original version of the violin concerto, which was a huge success and uh, was granted the Gramophone Award in 1993. And why, why was the original version not being generally played? Why was that a special thing? It was forbidden. Uh, the family, Sibelius himself and the family, they had forbidden to uh, perform it uh, for various reasons. The first performance of the concerto was not that successful. Is this because it's so difficult? It is uh, very difficult, and uh, although there are very beautiful passages in the music, and it's a pity that we can't hear it more often. And then we continued uh, with the Tempest, uh, that was never, had never been uh, recorded, I mean the whole music for the play, Shakespeare play, uh, which uh, Sibelius wrote as one of the latest works he had done, he did. And that also was awarded internationally. So the aim uh, for Robert von Bard, the manager and owner of the record company BIS, was to record every single note, uh, note Sibelius wrote. And it was our task to do those recordings. Of course, that, that led to situations where we played a lot of Sibelius music. And then the next thing was the original version of the Fifth Symphony, which was also a sensation. And then the Woodnumph, which was discovered in 1996, uh, which had not been played in a public uh, concert uh, uh, in one, almost 100 years. So, uh, and that was also a big thing. And then the relationship grew, grew and in 1997, 
we organized a series of concerts to play all the symphonies in Helsinki in the Kallia church. The church bells, the melody, is composed by Sibelius. And uh, that was a big uh, celebration. I mean, 40 years after 97, we had, had lots of uh, international journalists. We played in three nights uh, all the symphonies, all sold out concerts. And then the national TV uh, showed, which was very exceptional, on Saturday night, live the last concert, which was exactly 40 years from the death of Sibelius. And it began with In Memoriam, the piece Sibelius had composed, and then the symphonies. So, and the next step was to have 1999 a tour in uh, Japan, where we had four nights in Sumida, Trifoni Sumida Concert Hall. Uh, totally sold out all the symphonies, violin concert and other pieces. And from that the relationship had been so close to Sibelius that when we had uh, got the decision to build a new hall uh, in Lahti, it was obvious that uh, I asked the family could it be uh, given the name after Sibelius because this would be the Sibelius, there was no hall which yeah. was called Sibelius, after Sibelius. We had, didn't have it in Finland. So with our relationship and uh, the new hall which was supposed to be the best hall in Finland, one of the best in the world, which it is, so the connection was built and then we decided to start the Sibelius festival. So this is to put it together like, like this. Wow. What a lot of what a lot of work, but what a lot of joy, actually. Yes, it has it has been a wonderful journey uh, with Sibelius. Of course, uh, many many other things has uh, happened, but of course the center point has been the music of the Sibelius, and the, the orchestra is known for its Sibelius performances. And one could say that is uh, the Latte Symphony Orchestra is the the Sibelius Orchestra. Oh, well, I know because that's why I'm here, all the way from Scotland, <laughs> because your reputation reaches obviously across the world. But the, the, the actual building um, is is wooden. It's, yeah, it's a wooden building. Uh, you know, 1996, the Finnish government uh, ha had uh, declared uh, or announced that it should be the year of wood which meant that the government wanted to develop the use of wood not from from timber to more refined uh, products and then uh, uh, that there would be more wooden buildings in Lahti and, and uh, in this sense to really uh, expand uh, the wooden wood industry, and we had had uh, the idea to build a new concert hall. There was, it was a difficult task because the unemployment rate of uh, the city of Lahti at that time was almost 28 percent. So uh, the the economy of the city was very bad, and politically it was very difficult to justify that. Why should we have a new concert hall? But we got the uh, government to kind of support the project, uh, telling them that uh, we would build the hall of wood, totally of wood. Uh, and, and so fitting uh, in with their policy ideas. Yeah, we, we would help and, and the government needed a, a large or bigger project for that because they had failed in some other projects uh, which were discussed for, for example, a new ice hockey hall where they could have been used. Yeah, that was then the, the structure was of steel, not of wood and so on. So in, they needed a project, but uh, the city of Lahti was not too eager and uh, 
it was voted in our city council seven times and we have 59 uh, members and the first uh, starting uh, discussion was supported by 37-22 but the final decision which was crucial was only with one vote 30 to 29 and then we got the permission to start the project really of course we we had always not always but we had had a close relationship to wooden the wood industry we had the two biggest companies uh, Mezzalito and U United Paper Mills, UPM, they were our sponsors. I had good contacts to those comp companies and we had some other sponsors. Of course, they supported the project, but they were not the decision makers yeah. in, in city council here. But of course, this was an important support. And describe where it is. I mean, it's a shame, in a sense, that this is a podcast because you can't see the spectacular location, which is even more spectacular to a stranger to this part of Finland. You're travelling up through the country from the airport or from Helsinki, and really it's a big forest with a few clearings, and nothing really prepares you for the sudden change in the, in the landscape where the concert hall sits. Yeah, it's next to the lake, and of course... Uh, now we say the lake. It's enormous. Yeah. What's it's, uh, pronounce the lake properly for me? Vesi Järvi. Vesi Järvi. It's in English water lake. Oh. So, and the uh, name of the city, Lahti, it translated to English is a bay. So the bay is just in the lake of... <laughs> of the water lake. But it, I mean it's an extraordinary thing last night with the opening concert um, to see the, the, the sunset really over the, the north and the beautiful colours which really mirrored so much of the ideas that you get with listening to Sibelius. It's quite an emotional overload actually. Yes and of course it brings you to the idea of uh, uh, the composer's relationship to nature which was also very important and close. So, what could be better then? But tell me first about his relationship essentially to Finland, because I mean, what you described there about um, about the events in 1997, the televised concerts, obviously, it's obvious Sibelius is still huge to, to Finns, but a lot of people might not understand that that he was very active right at the point where Finland was trying to become an independent country. Yes, the, uh, how would I say, the importance of that uh, can be, uh, can't be uh, exaggerated or, or it was really important. The many of the compositions were used kind of as a political thing, but of course during those years when there was a the pressure from the uh, Russian side, uh, it, it was one needed to be very careful. For for example, the uh, compo composer or composition for uh, press celebration music that was totally kind of the political idea because there was the censor censoring the articles and, and uh, newspapers, and they organized the press celebration in uh, Helsinki, and Sibelius composed the press celebration music. Uh, the Finlandia has been used politically, of course, but also many other pieces. Uh, the first performance, 1899, of the first symphony uh, was, of course, very important for Sibelius because he was kind of accused that he doesn't write symphonies. He had written Kullervo and Leminkainen and Udnuf and other things, but not a symphony. So one could, one could think that this was now the momentum to show and of course it was important, but the most popular piece in that uh, concert was the Song of the Athenians, which is uh, the poem of R Victor Rudberg, where uh, you tell that uh, you, you must die for your people and fight for your people and so on. And when that piece was uh, with boy choir, there was this text, it's a song. So when that was performed, the, there was an explosion kind of of, of the, uh, the audience of hurrahs and so on. Not the first symphony, so uh, 
that could, could describe the situation, how sensitive it was and how important these pieces were. There are also other pieces. So it was, it was not, of course, only Sibelius. There was this group of artists, painters and, and authors and so on. Uh, but Sibelius was a very strong influencer in, in this sense. And he, he started off in a Swedish-speaking family. I'm slightly guessing from your surname that perhaps that you were as well? My family comes from uh, Sweden and then to Norway and then to Vasa, a Swedish-speaking uh, town at that time, uh, in the coast, uh, west coast. Uh, so the background from my mother's side and my father's side is kind of Swedish. But in our family, we didn't speak uh, Swedish. I speak Swedish fluently, but but all my friends uh, were Swedish and my relatives were Swedish. But in the inside the family, we used Finnish. And this would surprise people back home, I guess, because they think this is Finland. I mean, obviously, when you're on the trains, it's quite confusing because you see every place name in Finnish and Swedish. But coming to Sibelius, he grew up in a Swedish-speaking family, but very quickly was seemed to be really interested in the folklore and history of, of, of Finland. Yes, he belonged to the group or was associated with a group of young artists who wanted Finland to be independent and, and uh, the language to be uh, kind of uh, uh, important uh, so that we have our own language, not the Swedish, not the Russian, which was used in, in many places, in the official places. But one has to remember also that uh, I know the wife, when Sibelius uh, met Aino, uh, Aino was a young girl, and Aino's brothers were the Jarnefeld family, the painter, the author, the uh, composer Armas Jarnefeld uh, and so on. And their mother, Elisabeth Jarnefeld, was a strong phenomenon who f wanted to fight for the Finnish language. But she was not Finnish. She was from Russia. She was uh, from St. Petersburg, uh, from a noble uh, uh, family uh, from uh, Baltic countries. But and she didn't speak Swedish at all, of course, but she wanted to fight for the Finnish uh, language. And she gathered together these young artists, authors like Johanni Aho, and, and with the brothers, the sons, Janefeld's sons. And Sibelius came to this circle uh, very strongly, not only because of Aino, but of course Aino was also very important in that sense. So there, was, there were connections. And of course, in artistic uh, circles, uh, the idea of uh, Finnish as an independent nation had developed uh, very strongly. And there were many, many uh, Swedish-speaking uh, Finns uh, with uh, Swedish uh, name, uh, which they wanted to change or are changed to be Finnish. So very, very many Swedish uh, names were changed to Finnish at that time. Mm -hmm. So it was not only Finns, the, I mean Finnish-speaking Finns, but also very many uh, influential Swedish-speaking Finns wanted to get uh, Finland to be a nation among other nations. And that did come to pass happily. Um, then Sibelius' focus seemed to change, although perhaps it was there all the time. But this, as you describe it, this nature focus seemed to take over in a lot of his work. That started also already when, when he was a child. It comes from there. His very, very good friend from childhood, Walter von Kunov, has described Sibelius when he went to wood. He could take his violin to the wood and play in the nature, or when he was rowing on the lake, he, was, he played in the boat, and, and he, he always had 
some uh, things in his head he heard and, and the music and the nature so there was a strong relationship between nature and music and for example the tone poem Satu in Saga uh, he has told that that might be one of his most important compositions and that was composed 1892 if I remember correct now uh, yeah uh, so an early uh, piece and uh, it describes kind of the fantasy world uh, we don't know really what it is but it has a close connection to to the nature and, and there are other pieces from that period also which are very close to the nature of course then later on the latest compositions tapiola uh, describing the woods uh, and, and uh, also a fantasy world, Tom Poem, Tapila, and The Tempest, what is it? It is mm -hmm. very much of, <laughs> of yeah. nature and so on. So it went through his life, I would say. And when you, when I'm listening to this, and I know very little about Finland, and obviously pitifully little about Sibelius, and yet I can see, hear forests, swans, all nature and how is that how does that is you're a, you're also a, a musician you are in the orchestra of, uh, playing from for decades yeah. um how, how do you feel when you're playing that because i've got to say it's so emotional to me i'm almost crying thinking about it from last night it's difficult to say because you're so focused in the in the music in in itself so you might not uh, kind of uh, think about that too much uh, but uh, when, when you're listening you and you know the background then it's a little bit different you can really feel and uh, your uh, imagination starts to run <laughs> of, of what is happening what is going on and, and so uh, Sibelius himself it was it was a contradiction because uh, Sibelius himself, uh, he told that uh, all his music is absolute music, not describing anything. But then, on the other hand, we know that it's not true. It's not true. And for example, uh, the comp composition Woodnymph, which is a big symphonic poem telling of a young man, Björn, going into woods and meeting the Woodnymph there and being enchanted by the Woodnymph and, and then uh, realizing that this is not the true world and then uh, it's, it's to a disaster of Björn when he dies then and so on. So, it's a story. It's not absolute music. It is a story, really, <laughs> and a fantastic thing. I mean, do you think it? about that story when you're playing? This story, yes. But uh, for me, it is very special because I made my master's degree on this piece oh. when it was discovered in '96. Uh, there hadn't been any study of this. It was the first study I did for the university to really go through the backgrounds, the poem, and so on. Do you know, this is extraordinary. You've got one of the world's greatest composers in this country. And it seems amazing to me that it's only been relatively recently that so much of his material has been unearthed and used. And Yeah, that's true. Uh, but there's a reason for that also. Sibelius was very critical. For example, the Leminkain Endosite was not played uh, for decades, the Kullervo was not played in decades because he, has not, he was not satisfied of those pieces. He, from the 1890s, and also the Wudnov was not played. Uh, and uh, actually, I think the score of uh, Kullervo was, if I remember correctly, at Kajano, found at Kajano's home very late uh, only. And, and so he didn't want to be mentioned uh, as uh, nationalist comp composer. I think there was uh, this discussion with Mahler or, or the comment of Mahler that Sibelius is only a local comp composer uh, composing national music and he didn't want to uh, that. And when you hear the fourth symphony 
which is universal uh, music, fantastic. One couldn't say that he was a national composer only. And what is smaller, uh, German folk songs <laughs> and well, things. And also, everyone comes from somewhere. Yeah. If you don't come from somewhere, you've no not enough grounding to move on. It's of course very important to have your background and a cultural background and to use that uh, in several ways. But but uh, that was the reason that that uh, many of the uh, music sheets and compositions they were kept in the uh, Sibelius uh, in Ainola and then this is the, the home that he had home, at yeah, on the lake with yeah, his wife the, yeah where they lived in Yermenpa and then in 1980s the family gave all the music to uh, the Helsinki University uh, library and only after that uh, Eric Tavasana, who wrote the first big biography of Osibelius, could come into, had the permission to come into uh, all of the music and music sheets which were shown, and, and then other scholars also got the permission. And then things were found, like the wood nymph, for example, and other things, the original versions and, and so on. So that happened quite late. Sibelius uh, died only 1957, so he, he, he was a, uh, an old man who could control all the things. Yes, I see. But do you think then in modern Finland, um, are, you, are you, I mean, is he still the pivotal part of Finnish identity, especially when your identity is changing, you know, now the country is applying to join NATO after many decades, you know, many decades of trying to be neutral. Obviously, the Russian invasion into Ukraine brings back bad memories of what happened in the 1940s. I think the heritage of Sibelius will stay and, and he will remain the strong. Uh, part of the cultural and, and also political history of, of Finland. He has a position, a very strong position, I would say, still. And of course, with these kind of things as our festival, which is unique, you don't have an other festival. You don't have an other place in the world where in four days, four or five days, depending on, on, on which year you are, you can listen to only music of Sibelius in all concerts, only Sibelius music in Sibelius Hall with the best Sibelius orchestra. <laughs> so that's the opportunity. So we have had this festival now more than 20 years. Wagner has had his festival from Bayreuth obviously a bit longer, but if Wagner could have it for 150 years, why couldn't Sibelius have his festivals for 100 years? And it seems to work. When we started the festival, uh, there were uh, people suspected that it won't last long because we have played all the repertoire who wants to come back. But we have shown that people come back. We have had this uh, one group from uh, uh, England coming. There are people who have attended. Uh, of course, the corona was there, but, but uh, the virus. But uh, if we don't count that, they have come to all 20 festivals from England, there are people who are that faithful to Sibelius and want to come to listen in this hall, which is very special of course. This Sibelius hall has been chosen to be with different journalists and, and uh, other, as to be one of the 10, 10 best halls in the world or 20 best in the world, whatever, but one of the best halls in the world. And to come to listen to music here, it's of course a unique experience that we have so that it works. And so, <clears throat> how do the 30 people who voted against having the hall feel now? Uh, I would say that 95% uh, have changed their opi opinion <laughs> because the Lahti wouldn't be Lahti without the hall. It's not only concerts, it's of course meetings and, and, and not only classical music concerts, it's all kind of concerts which are organized in this hall. So it's really, it has become a vital part of the identity of, of the city. and. It's not only 
that you have a concert hall. One has to see a little bit, have a wider perspective. This is uh, about uh, less than two kilometers from the real center of the city. And when the place to be where we wanted it to be was uh, chosen, people uh, thought that it's too far over the, from the center, two kilometers, and the city was expanding to uh, to be kind of a narrow uh, thing to the east. And there was a professor who uh, who was a specialist for designing the. Uh, city layouts and he thought if you have the hall there it will have an impact to the whole city of the structure how it becomes and when we started to build the hall there were no other houses it was an old industrial plant or, or, or uh, industrial area and what happened when we uh, built the hall there were houses 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 it was a new uh, area for the city, people living there, and the uh, uh, beach we have there, or the area, it has been called the second living room of the Lahti uh, citizens, and people come there to walk, so it has been, uh, had an, or has an impact to the whole of the city, of the image of the structure of the city and so on. So it's not only to build a concert hall, it has larger uh, things to do. The Lahti Orchestra was the first orchestra in the world to start live streaming on internet, in internet. And we started the project to develop the project 2003 when there was not even enough capacity in the internet to do that. But we had the vision that it's going to happen one day. And we worked on that for several years. And finally, 2007, uh, we had the idea and we started the classiclive.com. And I invited, uh, or we invited different orchestras from uh, Europe, uh, many cities. Uh, I went to meet my colleagues in Stockholm, in London, in Paris, in uh, Rome, Budapest, Barcelona, whatever, uh, Marinsky Theatre with Gergev and so on, uh, to uh, co cooperate. And uh, we knew that the Berlin Philharmonic had also uh, started to develop their project. We started August 2007, they started uh, 2008. And then it took years after that when we had started, then the orchestras few orchestras started their own productions and only with the coronavirus now you can see that it has been expanded so almost 15 years later when we had started now you can have these live performances from everywhere but, but the vision was there we were a little bit too early with that but, but still but it gives us wonderful things because our archives are now for 2000. We have almost all our concerts in our archive. Famous artists, performances from in the Sibelius Hall, and so on. So that's something You can unique. never be too early to be a pioneer, Thomas. And, and the great thing about this is, this is a, a city of how many people, roughly? 120,000. 120,000 leads the world. You're not. You're. Are you the fourth, third, fourth city in in Finland? Seventh now. Seventh, right. <laughs> so you're the seventh city in Finland, which itself is the remotest country essentially in the EU. Um, a small city the size of Dundee back home, and you were right ahead of the entire world in making that move onto digital and live streaming. Well, congratulations. You're an inspiration all round. Thank you. Uh, by the way, of being uh, a, a remote city and a small city and so on, uh, I went, uh, Osmo Vanska had his debut in with the Chicago Symphony 2000, spring 2000, and I followed Osmo there. And I was invited to the former general manager uh, of the Chicago Symphony at that time. And he used to do radio broadcastings earlier. And I started, uh, we had half an hour. He had granted me half an hour. And 
Uh, I started to tell about Lahti. He told Thomas, you don't need to say anything of Lahti. Look the bookshelf. I have all your recordings. And then I was there and I thought that, okay, this is one of the most famous orchestras and the general manager and I come from Lahti, the tiny city of Finland. Uh, he tells me that you don't need to tell me anything of Lahti. I know everything. <laughs> so that's how it is. And the Lahti Symphony Orchestra haven't stopped innovating. In 2021, they appointed their first female conductor, a rising star born in Kiev, Ukraine, but trained in Finland. I'm sitting here with Dalia Stasevska, who is, uh, well, I would imagine fairly exhausted after a not usual day for a chief conductor of any orchestra, but you are about to embark on the Sibelius Festival, um, three, four days, is it, of, of continuous concerts. You've just had a two hour rehearsal. You spent the morning trying to fix a truck to go to the Ukraine, more of which in a minute. <laughs> And um, you seem to, it seems to rest very easily with you. You take all this in your stride. I don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> I just do what is needed to do, yeah. Well, just to, 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 to look at your own background, you, you were born in Kiev, you, in Ukraine. You've been moving towards Finland. You spent some time in Tallinn and then came to Finland. Um, is Finland your home now or is Ukraine still home? I feel that uh, Finland has been always my home, though I grew up in Tallinn I was, until I was five years old. But, uh, you know, my mother is Finnish and I never used to live in Ukraine, so I was just born there. So I definitely feel that Finland is my home and the culture is something that I feel uh, that is mine. Well, just in that, wh where does Sibelius fit into all this? You're a young woman, you've got a fresh approach to everything. Does Sibelius still feel fresh and relevant to you? Completely. And uh, he's, uh, I would say, one of the most important composers for me. I can't really recall when I heard him first time, because it almost feels that he has been always there. And I feel extremely connected to the way he feels and sees the world. And I think his music is eternal. And in that sense, I think it's also always going to be fresh. And uh, it's for me, Sibelius' music is a little bit like you are in a Finnish lake and you see a fish there and you try to grab it but you cannot because you have an optical illusion and this is what i love with the sibelius you it's so close but there's always something beneath the surface that you can find and try to reach and try to understand but you never can really get it you know and that's why i think his music is so eternal and he's also one of those composers Believe it or not, like when I have a free time, I usually do something else except studying music. But with Sibelius, I just sometimes for fun, just grab his scores. And I feel almost like a child, you know, every time I open it that, oh, unbelievable, I should do this and that and that. And I'd always try to, to understand, especially his structures, even more and more and more. So it's, uh, until now, it has been for me, a great joy to get to know his music and what an amazing opportunity I have with this orchestra that I can have this festival, Sibelius festival and uh, even more deep dive into his music than I would with other orchestras. Because you also are a principal guest conductor with the British, uh, with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. So how does this let you get in here? I mean, is this your band? Yes, well, for now, for three years, we have a contract together. So it was for me a big deal breaker. Also, when Sinfonia Lahti uh, asked me to be their chief conductor. And then, of course, I, I knew the great history with Sibelius's music. 
So I, I, I saw that also a great opportunity for me, as I said previously, to deep dive in a completely different level with Sibelius's music. Because with BBC Symphony Orchestra, I can't do this kind of programs where it's only Sibelius. <laughs> I don't think we will sell tickets. <laughs> we need you, to. I think we, you would actually. Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe, but uh, it's uh, it's not that simple, and not something that you know I could do a cycle, just like that. It's it's more a rare occasion. But here we have, we have festival every year going on, so it's a, it's a great opportunity. Mm. And and what is what is the finish? of the Sibelius and what you're able to do here with this orchestra. What's characteristic to Finland about that sound? I would like to think of Sibelius almost like a little bit broader way because I, I don't think in that sense he is Finnish. I think he's universal, his language and music is universal. This that he was a Finnish Finn and the Finnish nature and the, our seasons, the darkness, the light, uh, cranes, <laughs> swans, everything what he saw uh, inspired him. And of course, in the beginning of his career, all these folk tunes and this something speciality, of course, that all influenced but what came out of it is extremely universal language uh, and unique one, of course. But uh, what is special with this orchestra that I can say that they have a, such a long tradition playing that the starting point is so much higher than with many of the orchestras that I conduct that I don't need to explain many things. We can go much more deep dive directly into the music. So that's wonderful thing. And uh, I don't think also that there's really a tradition that much in Finland. Every orchestra has their own tradition playing. So, but what's special about Symfonia Lahti is their string sound. It's very unique in the whole Finland. So it's very full and lush and something that you would maybe more hear in uh, Central Europe. So, but I think that this hall that we have here, Sibelius Hall, it's the best also concert hall in Finland. And I think that this instrument also helped them to develop this incredibly beautiful uh, full string sound that you can uh, recognize Sinfonia Lahti. And on your own uh, direction with the orchestra then, um, how would you? I haven't obviously heard you yet because the first concert was a guest conductor, Pavel Yarvi, which was an amazing concert last night. Do you sit there and think, well, there's a there's a high bar, or have you a totally different approach? Is the whole orchestra very different? Yes, I I think that uh, my approach is going to be very different because I'm a different person, you know, and uh, but. Uh, I'm uh, extremely always inspired by seeing my colleagues and it's a great opportunity to hear another orchestra every time and especially in your home hall just to observe how the sound uh, is coming out. So, and Pavo Yarvi, um, we, we are great friends and I used to be his assistant actually seven years ago with Orchestra de Paris. So uh, I know his style very well and I, I basically, he was my mentor, mentor and very important figure in my life. So for me, it's, it was a great, great joy to see amazing Pavo Jarve after so many years and he inspired me so much. So I feel very energized to start my own three concert cycle today. Yeah. And I mean, you are the first female chief conductor of this orchestra, which is congratulations and brilliant and long overdue and great. <laughs> um, does that bring anything? Does it give any expectations that you find hard? Um, I don't really pay attention, to be honest, to that. You know, I am who I am. Take it or leave it. They took it. <laughs> you know, I'm a musician and uh, 
uh, I try to be as honest as I can. And if there's sometimes some stones on my path uh, that for some reason, maybe because I'm uh, wrong sex in somebody's uh, opinion, um, I tend to look into horizon and I have my own focus <laughs> where I'm going to and rest is noise, you know? Yeah. And this is uh, what I say to every single person, man or a woman, just do what you love and reach it and everybody has their own path and sometimes uh, it is a little bit more difficult for women but it's really important to keep your focus and stay true to yourself be who you are you know and i i believe even it will maybe come slower sometimes for us some things that we achieve but it will come definitely and this has been always for me really clear and I, I don't like pay attention to anything and I think that that got me also far you know because people see that I'm just who I am I don't try to be anybody else yes absolutely and your path changed a little bit when you were younger because you were studying to be well a violin you are a violin player and I understand that you actually pawned your violin to get the money to be able to take some lessons or to take the education to move across to become a conductor now what what goes on in your mind when you think actually i want to cross the floor you know i i always liked orchestra music and i i wanted for so long time to become an orchestra musician there's something about that i never enjoyed really being on my own just to practice it was so much more fun to play together with friends and the music is so fantastic and be part of this magnificent pieces, operas, symphonies, etc. But uh, when I saw for the first time female conductor, something like really clicked in my head and I thought that, wait a minute, I've been studying f for as long as I remember scores myself and it never occurred to, my, to me that I could try it myself until I was 21 years old, and that's not that long ago. I didn't see not a single female. You know, those role models are so important sometimes to push us. And it was not long time after that, that uh, I found myself in a conducting masterclass. There was this legendary Finnish conducting teacher called Jorma Panula, who is teacher every single <laughs> Finnish conductor living. And uh, and I asked him that, could I try conducting also? And he said, of course. And he grabbed some receipt from his pocket and wrote on the, on the wrong side, like phone number, said, call there, there. In one month, there's a masterclass. So I think the masterclass like costed 500 euros. I somehow just crushed all the money that I had. I went there for a weekend and I remember that I felt completely lost like it was so hard but something was just so fantastic and I felt for the first time in my life challenged in a way that I never have been before that something like completely like hooked me and I never since laid down the baton from my hand I just knew it that I need to do anything, I need to try this out. And um, conducting masterclasses, they cost a lot. They usually are like 1,500 euros for one week. So when you are a student, I mean, your money to spend in a month is 300 euros, <laughs> you know? So it was, it was really hard. Uh, and I, I don't come from a family, they don't have any single penny to lend for me. So I basically just went to every single gig in restaurants, weddings, funerals, everything what I could get my hands on. And then with the rest of money, I, I pruned my violin twice. I got there like around thousand euros. 
And then after the masterclass was over, I continued to work like nuts just to get, <laughs> get my money, my money collected so I could take my violin out of there because before it was too late. So I was like really living on the edge. And now I think of it like, my goodness, what did I do? But at that time, like I wanted so badly that, you know, I, I really put everything into it and lived on porridge probably for <laughs> one year, basically. But it was worth it. Well, yes, because it was one, all worth it, you know. One in incredible event you had was, was conducting in the last night of the proms with no audience. I mean, many people remember watching that and yeah. seeing seeing it just on television. But how was that to, to, to play, to conduct? Because it, of the coronavirus, I should yeah. add. It was actually quite emotional concert for us, performance, because uh, first of all, most of us didn't play almost for half a year. So that was the first concert we met together. That was the first time I conducted BBC after such a long time. So it was so emotional for us just to see each other and, and play together. And then at the same time, we were like basically thrown into ice cold water because we had to immediately uh, get used to this dist sitting with distances, almost two meters. And uh, Many people don't realize that the sound actually travels. And when you're sitting so afar from each other, I couldn't anymore trust my ears. I had to learn during one year just to how to listen and trust that you know that the people who are sitting meters away from me in the back, that they actually, that the sound comes to me late, but there in the hole, it actually, it comes somehow mirac miraculously together. So the people who are sitting in the back, they need to play a little bit up front to match the people who are sitting in front. And then knowing this, that this goes for television, you know, and everything. So we put so much of effort and work into it. It was unbelievable how we pulled it together. But uh, I think the, the core was still that we were so happy to be able to play. And we knew that millions of people were watching and it meant for us, for everybody so much that uh, after this uh, crazy experience and being still in it, you know, when words end, we can just listen to music and just, you know, uh, let the music speak everything what we cannot say and feel, you know. But unfortunately, your crazy time didn't stop because then we shortly after that we had Russia invade Ukraine and I know that has taken up a lot of your energy quite obviously and rightly and across Europe the same is true what what are you doing at the moment and is there a way that people listening can help yeah many people say that they had time before corona and after corona and I feel that for me it was time before Ukrainian war or the Russian war on Ukraine and after that. But to be honest, uh, the, the war started already eight years ago in 2014 and it has been going all the time. It's just been really painful to see that nobody has cared, hmm. that people have been dying there for eight years and what Russia has been doing. And business has been going like usual. But now, of course, situation is much worse, and and uh, I'm I'm glad that people realize that uh, democracy is not something that is should be taken for advantage. It's something that we we need to remind ourselves that we need to fight for it because there are some violent people who try to take it out away from us, and they they have brought us like back 70 years to those horrible memories from the Second World War time. And it's, of course, the whole tragedy happens in Ukraine and Ukrainians are paying with the highest price. But of course, we also see in Europe that with the refugees, uh, there is uh, food terrorism, there is uh, uh, 
gas terrorism, our prices are going higher, you know, with food, electricity, and the only blame is Russia, you know, so what are we going to do about it? And it's, it's not anymore that only Ukrainians feel it, now it's everybody feels that, and we really need to act. And it's, it's really, I, I feel that I really live in a kind of like dualistic time for myself, at the same time, like, my all free time, I'm just thinking of Ukraine, how can I help? And I'm all the time constantly giving interviews, I'm in contact with many politicians, I try to go and speak as much as I can about Ukraine, and I give sometimes speeches before concerts to audiences, just to remind that don't please don't forget Ukraine. And at the same time I'm living amazing time career-wise, but um, when the uh, Russia attacked Ukraine, I, I thought that I need to actually quit conducting and just become a full-time volunteer. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't, because in such a hard time, I found so much, I don't know, uh, so much power in music and what it gives to me. It's like the only moment when I can forget about these horrors in Ukraine and I feel almost like on a holiday <laughs> when I'm conducting music and so much joy and it, it powers me and gives me like hope uh, for all the good things that the, actually our world is about, you know, and uh, gives me power to, to go and fight for Ukraine as much as I can in my own <laughs> battlefields. Uh, so, so it is for me extremely important that I continue doing music and that I didn't drop it because I think I, I, I would have gone nuts. Just It's just too much to bear. And of course now when this happened, that many people thought this would never happen, you know, it, it has opened our old wounds and history, what we had to go through with Russia. And it's not those experiences that people had in Finland with Russia, they don't differ much that Ukrainians are going through. The same kind of savagism has been there. And that's why it, for us it's so important to help Ukraine in every single way, because we know that it will come next to our doorsteps. Yeah, and just finally, honestly, because you need to get on. Then there's this extraordinary thing that Sibelius, when he began writing, was writing in a period where Russia occupied Finland and was very involved in boosting people's self-confidence, telling this different story of Finland and raising its international profile. And it seems extraordinary here, you, you, you've moved into this from Ukraine with exactly the same situation a hundred years later. But you know, does this make you think differently at all about the music of, of Sibelius from that period? Or is that putting too much onto it? I think it's very important to acknowledge historical uh, uh, events. And of course, Sibelius was extremely important figure in the birth, basically, of the independent Finland and and I always like to say that Finland doesn't have like amazing long independent history with kings and some glorious wars. No, we have been always for a long time been occupied and when we finally became free and independent it was built on culture, language, literature, music, uh, paintings. So in that sense, Sibelius' Sibelius's importance in that and creating what Finland sounds like uh, is, is really important. And uh, of course his roots are there and in his early compositions you can, you can uh, hear his, uh, his enthusiasm uh, to find what is the Finnish folklore, you know, what is our sagas, 
that art is only ours and to kind of uplift the Finnish uh, atmosphere. And at the same time, he's, uh, he was uh, moving towards being universal composer with universal and unique language. So that combination is very fascinating and it's very important as an artist to acknowledge that thing. And this is what's amazing about Sibelius Festival, that when you have a chance with a festival of four, four days and play so many concerts, that you can have this arc of, of his compositions very early in the middle term and then the last ones, that how can the orchestra sound and articulation also develop with the way his music developed through the years. And since Sibelius lived to the age of 91, there were many years to cover, even though he produced no new work in his final decades. But he lived where he found inspiration, with his wife, Ayana, and their six daughters on the shores of Lake Tuzula, just north of Helsinki Airport. Back then, though, it was the sight and sound of swans that filled the air and the colours of nature that played music as he walked and composed. I'm here in the garden of Ayanola, which is the uh, the house that Jean Sibelius came with his wife uh, in now, 1908? 1904. There you are, and that proves that I'm sitting beside a guide, Christina Kananen. Outside this house, which is beside a lake that now is obscured from vision just here, but was so important to Sibelius when they came to live here, because this was his, he had forest around him, he had a lake in front of him, and this was, for a man who really responded to nature so strongly, this was just kind of a, a, a perfect place to be. Yes, definitely. Some would say that you can even hear it from his music, all the nature around him, the finished nature. And he would go on daily walks into the forest. So that was really important to him. And, um, and he composed there, yes, didn't he? he not composed. not on the piano. We've just you just showed us the piano, but actually he seemed to compose in his head as he was walking. Yes, that's correct. So he composed completely in his head, which meant that he would often go into the forest to compose, and he would go into this area which he called the temple. So there isn't an actual building or anything. He would have this chair where he would sit and just compose in silence, and he said that the silence of nature in Ayala spoke to him. For example, he, uh, his favourite birds were the swans and one time he saw 16 swans fly by and he wrote it down how it was one of the most important moments in his life and he wrote down this piece which ended up in his fifth symphony at the finale. So you can probably hear that there when listening to it. And th- that, so that kind of connection, I hear it very strongly mm. in all sorts of things um, and find it incredibly emotional. Now, you mm. Finns are not quite so emotional that you sit <laughs> crying at the end of symphony. I've been crying in all these symphonies and, and uh, concerts I've been listening to. Yeah. Well, actually, that's funny that you mentioned that because we just had a person play Jean's piano today or the grand piano uh, in the drawing room. And when he played uh, Finlandia... I was moved. I didn't cry, but my colleague, I saw her crying. <laughs> and I would say that is very rare to see in a fin, but Finlandia especially, that something about it really moves you. And I think it's especially for Finns. There's something very national. <laughs> well, it was written during the National Awakening, so you this can really hear it. This was a period when yes. Russia basically was running Finland. And yes. Sibelius was a big part of the independence movement. Yes. But it's interesting how that works with music, isn't it? Because it, it's not saying the words, be independent, mm. be yourselves, but it's so incredibly majestic and upbeat yes. and, and uplifting that you feel you're taking off at the end of it. Yes, you feel it. You really feel it. There's something really powerful in it. And then there were these parts where you could hear, the, uh, kind of feel the joy also. Because, well, now in hindsight, obviously, know that we did become independent. So you can hear the happiness, but obviously it was written before that. But you can really feel the 
connectedness between Finns and the independence and everything, all those feelings they might ha- must have been feeling back then. But just coming back to where we are, which is sitting, in, it's, it's this is such a beautiful, calm, wooden-built house, designed-built house, because um, Sibelius was here amongst a whole a community of artists, architects. Things were well-designed, as they always seem to have been in <laughs> Finland. Uh, tell me about just the story of particularly this colour association. I had never heard of this before. Yes, so synesthesia. Jean had synesthesia, which which for him meant that he, when looking at particular colours, he would hear music. And the ones that we know about is that when he saw green, he would hear F major, uh, yellow was D major, red was C major and the blue sky was A major. So you can only imagine when he stepped outside with all of these colours, what kind of sounds would be playing in his head. I wonder if that sits within it, that if he could, if, if he was basically hearing sounds as he saw colours, mm-hmm. he was bombarded all the time with, with music as he walked through nature. Yes, I think that's a good point to make. Um, possibly could have influenced why nature had a big uh, influence. It's probably hard for us, people who don't have synesthesia to even imagine just walking in the forest and hearing all these melodies. That was Jean's life. So maybe that is the reason why nature spoke to him so much. He also had just straightforward money problems um, and the grand piano nearly Mm. disappeared. Yes, so uh, at the time when Jean was gifted the grand piano, which was in 1915 on his 50th birthday, um, the family still had quite a lot of money issues. So uh, the debt collectors actually wanted to take away the grand piano. So they had to have a huge collection where 15,000 people participated and which shows already at the time how much he was respected. These were, some of them were strangers. They weren't his friends or obviously his friends also participated. But 15,000 people helped him so that his grand piano got to stay in his home. And that's an an unusual thing as well, to be so celebrated in your own lifetime Mm. as any kind of artist, because that usually waits till afterwards. Um, What happened to the house after he died? His wife was quite a formidable woman as well. Um, What happened after he died? Well, Jean died in 1957. And after that, Aino Sibelius, his wife, still lived here for 12 more years. But uh, when she died... Uh, their daughters sold the house to the government and it was turned into a museum. And this was Ina's wish. She knew the importance of her husband's work and she wanted it to be a museum. Apparently, Jean, maybe not so much. <laughs> he would have probably enjoyed the silence <laughs> here <laughs> till the eternity. But Ina knew the importance and because of that, it was turned into a museum and the museum started to run in 1974. We have fourth graders coming here each year to visit the house. So it is something that everything knows about and everything knows about Finlandia. So it's definitely, it's not something that will be just forgotten or is history or for the old people or something. It will live on. This podcast about Jean Sibelius was recorded by Leslie Riddick, edited by Chris Smith, and made possible by the generosity of the Sibelius Festival in Lati, Finnair and Visit Finland.